Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So I want to start um, the new year um, the best way I know, and that would be with a Rumi poem. It's a favorite one that we all have heard before. Uh, Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. A beautiful poem that really speaks to why we get up in the morning when we could sleep in, why we sit for 30 minutes when we want to wiggle, you know, why we drag ourselves here week after week because intuitively we all know that field. We all know that beautiful space um, where the world is too full to talk about, you know. It's known somewhere. I'll do another one. There is a way between voice and presence where information flows. In disciplined silence, it opens. With wandering talk, it closes. Mm. Why we wake up to meditate, yeah? And this one speaks to me about um, our topic today, Four Noble Truths. Hopefully we'll get to that topic. I I can't guarantee that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's called Not Here. There's courage involved if you want to become truth. There is a broken, open place in a lover. Where are those qualities of bravery and sharp compassion in this group? What's the use of old and frozen thought? I want a howling hurt. This is not a treasury where gold is stored. This is for copper. We alchemists look for talent that can heat up and change. Lukewarm won't do, half-hearted holding back, well enough getting by, not here. We alchemists look for something that can heat up and change. What's the use of old and frozen thought? Another reason why we come and sit and practice and listen to the Buddha's word, we kind of get that sense, what's the use of old and frozen thought? What can heat up and shift, change, let go? What can we release? And this is the message of the Buddha when he talked about the Four Noble Truths. This is what he was talking about. What heats up, what lets go? How do we open up? this grasping mind, this grasping tendencies? How do we drop it and experience that peace that Rumi was talking about in the field? 
right? How do we just release to this beautiful, open-ended presence, this space? Something we inherently know, but can't always put words on, but you know it, right? Everybody knows it. Everybody's experienced in here, but it's hard to define with words. So it's really interesting that um, the Buddha, uh, when he sat under the tree and became enlightened, and he didn't really want to teach, um, but for some reason, and we'll go into that another time, he decided to try. And the first thing he did was he um, went up to a couple of friends that he had been practicing with, renunciates, and he wanted them to kind of join the club, right? And he, so he told them he was enlightened. And um, they looked at him, and they just walked away, like, who cares, you know? And he was like, well, that doesn't work. And um, the second attempt, he went into the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and that seemed to stick. That seemed to really um, get them to stop and notice a bit. Um, and so this is how it all started. And this is a um, tradition that was oral, completely oral for hundreds of years. And as a result, you know, when you're trying to teach something, those of you who are teachers here, and you're standing in front of a group, it's very easy to say, well, remember these three things, right? Think about these four or this eight to, to group subjects and bunch them. So today when we're teaching um, Buddhism and especially Vipassana and the Theravadan approach, we come up and we're giving you uh, lists of things. <laughs> there are pages and pages. There are so many lists, right? Um, there's eight kinds of virtue, three characteristics of existence, three pillars of the Dharma, three poisons, three refuges, and it goes on and on. Four Brahma-Viharas, four jhanas, you know. And um, so it's very easy to take an intellectual mind and say, I need to know and understand these lists. And once I understand these lists, then I know what the Buddha talked about, right? because I got the lists down. <laughs> but he actually was not talking about an intellectual ability to know the lists at all. He was talking about um, a felt sense way of living the truths and experiencing them for yourself in your own way, in your own mind, as they come through your body-mind. And everyone will know it differently and experiencing, experience it differently. Um, it's so funny because we, I was kind of asked to teach the Four Noble Truths down here, you know, start at the beginning. And uh, it's very easy to say, oh, I know the Four Noble Truths. I know what they are, right? It's almost like the ocean, you know? Um, if you're swimming in the ocean, it's never the same twice. You never have the same experience. And the ocean is so vast and wide, it's different swimming in the ocean off the New Jersey shore than swimming in Hawaii, than swimming in Santa Monica, than swimming in Puerto Rico or Greece. You can never, every time you step in the ocean, it's completely different. 
there isn't one ocean. And you couldn't really always find the words for your experience of ocean, but you know it from swimming in it. That's the challenge of the teachings and the practice. Uh, we can very intellectually go page by page, but it's like the ocean, you have to throw it away. And in fact, the Buddha, <laughs> he, he said throw it away. You know, after you use the raft to cross the river, get rid of the boat, right? <laughs> He's telling you, throw everything I say away. It's such great freedom. It's really the teachings, everything on this list point to freedom, point to the space of the ocean, the expanse of the sky and the mind, right? He's, he's just giving us pointers. Let me give you a hint, he says. Right? Three poisons. Let me give you a hint of what gets in the way. A lot of this here is, is he's pointing to what gets in the way of spaciousness and freedom, right? of nirvana, of a cooling down of the things that get in the way from this beautiful state. So, uh, so part of learning the Buddhist teachings is to know it enough to embody it, to experience it, to make it lived for you, and to um, go beyond anything that you would hold on to in your mind. Very interesting, right? Very interesting. So, uh, so these four noble truths, um, and I'll back up a moment. A couple of months ago, uh, Stephen Batchelor came to town, and some of you may be familiar with his books. He's written a number of books on secular Buddhism. One of the points he made um, was we take things like four noble truths and we make them into these truths, you know, almost these religious things that you have to do if you're a good Buddhist, right? And he, his point was um, these are not truths, they're tasks. There's something to live and really experience. Um, and they're kind of ideas or goals. It's something that's very lived, that's alive. And um, so it's not this um, thing that you, you learn and try to live by. It's this experience that we um, we find in our daily living, moment by moment by moment, as it unpacks for us. And um, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. So the other person that I've been thinking about and reading is um, Rick Hansen in his book, Hardwiring Happiness. Some of you are nodding. It has everything to me to do with the Four Noble Truths in my mind, I don't know about somebody else's mind, but in this mind, it really lands for me. And he really talks about how um, our brains are the product of um, hundreds of millions of years of a history that's long and personal, that's not us, that really is about evolution, the evolutionary process, and that shapes you. It's living between your two ears. Right? 
it's not, you know, a Wendy or a Frank or a Bob. It's just this process of evolution, how organisms have survived for millions of years on this planet. Um, and he points to the fact that it's, it's, it's present in uh, the way we respond to life and ourselves. And he says, suppose you got 20 things done and on your to-do list, the famous to-do list, but you made one mistake. What's likely to stick in your mind as you fall asleep? Is it the 20 things you got done or the one mistake? The one mistake, yeah. Some of us, it sticks a little deeper than others, right? <laughs> and then there's the 2 a.m. mind that wakes up to remind you about the mistake. Anybody have one of those, right? Oh, yeah. And then there's the mind that has the alarm clock that will wake you up with it, two, four, six, right? <laughs> um, and it's in the brain's evolution, you know? And, and he kind of um, says, you know, learn how the brain was built so you understand the impersonal nature of how your brain operates and that that's not really you at all. That's your brain hardwired through survival um, that does things like this. Um, and he says, over the last 600 million years, solutions to survival problems have been faced by every creature on Earth from jellyfish, clams, mice, monkeys, and humans, and it's part of our central nervous system that we've got this thing called survival. Um, and the Buddha talked about this too, and we'll link it, all right? Um, he says, the world is the womb of the human brain, and it has had to adopt to conditions of attack, being eaten by things, starvation, parasites, illness, injury, and here we are. It's shaping our experience. Rule number one in the wild is eat lunch today, don't be lunch. <laughs> and some of us are still experiencing this, right? In some of our workplace home environments, right? <laughs> you, it's still there, right? Um, so, of course, you know, over hundreds of millions of years, um, it's a matter of life and death to pay extra attention to what the perceived threat is, right? So we're going to really notice that threat. And we may not notice the other hundreds of things that have gone well from the moment we have woken up, right? Uh, and so many things go well for us. We're a very privileged society, but we suffer so much. You know, we have enough food. We've got shelter. There's relative peace. We, there's a doctor if you're sick. Um, there are wonderful, supportive um, things all around us to take part of. We have such freedom to some degree, to a large degree. Um, we're relatively safe, but we're all living with these paper tigers, these perceived threats, right? Mm -hmm. So really, um, I would say the title for the talk today, maybe if it has a title, who knows, <laughs> would be the paper tigers, right? That destroy this peace and this, this freedom, this beautiful state of being. We've all got these paper tigers running. We all do. We all have a different flavor of paper tiger, but we all do. So, um, and it's because it's not personal. Um, it's that the central nervous system and the fact that animals to survive were driven nervous 
hyper-sensitive, um, vigilant, clinging, uh, have passed on their genes in survival, and it's woven into our DNA, right? It's just woven into us of who we are. And you know, you could have a day where you feel relaxed and happy and at ease, but still be scanning for potential danger, disappointment, or interpersonal rejection. Right? You've been at that family party, right? And part of you is enjoying the punch and the appetizer and the nice music, but you're waiting for somebody in the family to throw that barb, right? <laughs> Are they gonna say something mean? You know, right? It's a hard wire. It's not you. Um, so, and very often in the back of our minds, there's usually a subtle but noticeable sense of unease, dissatisfaction, and separation that keeps us a little bit like um, that animal looking, right? It, we're looking. We're just not dropping it. Why? Right? Um, and we perceive negative stimuli way more rapidly than positive. Apparently, we recognize angry faces more quickly than happy ones. Um, <clears throat> and you will react to an angry or a difficult face even without your awareness or your consciousness. The brain will perceive it so quickly. Um, lasting intimate relationships need at least five positive interactions to balance every negative one. Not such good news for those of us right, trying to keep harmony, right? Um, a misdeed will harm a hero's reputation more than a good deed will improve a villain's. Once you have a bad image of somebody, it's very hard to break it. Your brain is defended, right, against it. And why? Because in the middle of your head, this is Rick Hansen, I'm not a scientist, um, the central circuit of overreactivity has three parts, the amygdala, the hypothalamus, and the hippocampus. <clears throat> um, and he says, think about a time when someone got angry with you and you felt some anxiousness about it, or anxiety, or if you're like me, complete indignation, right? You're like, what, me? Right. Um, the other person has activated your amygdala, um, and somewhat like a charging lion um, would have a million years ago, um, the brain sends up that urgent call for adrenaline, cortisol, neuroepirine, stress hormones. And um, many of us feel that in our body, right? You just feel that. It's such an awful feeling. We're all nodding like, oh yeah, I know that feeling when that's getting released. Um, and it's obviously creating fear, anxiety, and stress. Now some of us have different ways of dealing with that, right? Like some of us will ruminate and will try to be perfect, right? Others of us will vent. Blah, blah, right? Others of us will just feel panic and anxiety symptoms. Some of us will um, grab something to make it go away. Food, alcohol, drugs, <laughs> shopping, candy, you know, uh, we'll just get busy. Now you can get on your phone and make it go away in a million ways. <laughs> right? I mean, this has become the most intimate relationship I've ever had. <laughs> you never let it go. What's the first thing you grab? 
grab for in the morning and the last thing at night. If you get involved with this, right, it will become your lover. <laughs> okay. So more and more the alarm bell of your brain rings more easily and loudly because we repeat and retread, apparently. And even if the danger is a false alarm, um, it still takes many minutes to get that cortisol down, all these stress hormones down, um, in all our different styles of coping. And he does call it the paper tiger paranoia. Um, and, and this is it. The, the, our ancestors make two, could make two kinds of mistakes. One is there's a tiger in the bushes and we don't know it's there. Or we think there's a tiger in the bushes, and it's not there. So for our ancestors, the first one is way more tragic. For us today, the second one is way more tragic, right? And this is why the Buddha talked about understanding suffering, knowing it, the suffering from this hardwire, right? And being in a world that is completely uncertain, um, you don't know you you don't know how you got here. Really, you kind of know how you got here, but you don't know how you're going to leave. But we know you're going to leave. <laughs> Not me, you. No. <laughs> kidding, right? Um, you know, and and this hard wire of paper tiger paranoia, right? That is a lot of suffering for a lot of us, uh, and it. <clears throat> it obstructs that beautiful field, you know? It obstructs that beautiful way of being, boundaryless, open, filled with love and joy, the things that are inherently ours to have, to hold, to be, you know, that go beyond time and space, that aren't tangible. These are the things you can't lose as an open heart. You can't lose an open heart, right? You can't lose love. You can't lose that beautiful presence of being, you know, it's, those are yours beyond conditioned things. And that's the first noble truth. It's what he was talking about, right, to those guys on the road. Hey, I got something to tell you, right? You know, this was kind of it. And the second one is about um, the nature of grasping. If you say something to me on Thursday that hurts my idea of me, my sense of self, which really happened to me, I'm not just, <laughs> um, my mind will grasp and hold onto it for days, right? Could be true about me, could not be true, but if I believe in a secure, solid sense of me that has to be held and propped up and loved by all of you, am I gonna suffer? Yes. You betcha. And there are going to be a lot of therapists that make a lot of money on me, too. Because <laughs> I'm going to need a lot of therapy for that, as we do. I'm just joking. Because it, we're hardwired to grasp it. You know, it's the tiger. It's the paper tiger. It's not because we're vulnerable or weak or stupid or we didn't get it or we didn't read the memo, you know, right? Or we had terrible parents and all of that. We have all of that because we're human. We're vulnerable. It's because of this brain thing. We're hardwired to grasp and hold. And when we do it, there's this enormous suffering that takes over and obscures and blocks us from this beautiful, light, living presence, right? 
So he's telling you this, he's giving you this blueprint, really, of um, this beautiful way of being. And the third one is even more beautiful than the other two, and that is, um, that is, there's a way to get out of this, right? There's a way to let it go. There's a way to put this down. There's a way to end the grasping and the clinging, right? And he's like, hang out with me and, I'll, and we'll explore that, right? Not because I'm gonna give you intellectual knowledge or make you read articles or books. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if he sent a bibliography to people, right? And said, if you read this, you'll get liberated. He said, no, come live this, come experience this through meditation, through concentration, tranquility, wisdom practice, sangha, um, understanding these truths through lived experience, you can put this down, you can put down the suffering that's optional. And you can live with the suffering that isn't. Now, some of us, you know, a lot of times we're running from suffering um, because it's suffering in our head. We're, we're the solution, we're the problem, there's a problem, I'm gonna fix it, and we ruminate like rats on a wheel. But really, the key to sometimes suffering is to be able to hold it in our heart, you know, and that to know you can't always fix everything is just inherent in life. Some of it is not going to be fixable. And to be able to hold it with this deep love and compassion, you know, to get out of the head down to the heart, right, and understanding it completely in the belly. Um, this is what it means to be human and not be God, right? So um, I really believe, too, that a lot of people in 12-step programs inherently have had to understand the third noble truth. It's not so um, metaphysical and spiritual and pie in the sky. You know, I think the 12-step programs also teach a language of letting go. They're really talking about this elegant thing in our lives that we get to do, um, which is to let go open the heart and let people and things and ourselves be as we are, right? Um, so much interpersonal grasping, you know? We need people to be how we want them to be. I need my boss to be how I want that person to be. Um, you know, coworkers, children, it just goes on and on, right? And, and the Buddha is talking about when you have this idea of someone in your life that you love or do not love, how do you cling to your concept? How do you cling to your idea? To even know that with mindful awareness that you're even doing it, right? <laughs> I'm still very good, and some of these things we do over and over again, because some things, and I wanna say this, there's some clinging that will persist no matter how hard we try will do the same thing over and over again. I have sat in a meeting for two years and clung to what I think the meeting should be like for two years, and it's never like the way I think, and I still think it should change. As a matter of fact, I will, next week when that meeting happens, I will cling to the meeting again, my idea. You know, and um, that's really fine. That's really fine, because we. It, it's not like this is, um, the practice is a race, or you get an A, I recommend a C minus. <laughs> you know, 
but um, it's really uh, more about this path of compassion and being present with what's unfolding and accepting what the unfolding is. And in this example of um, the meeting, it's really not, you know, when do you need to let go of your grasping of how you think this meeting should be? It's about being with what's arising, which is a mind that wants something that isn't there. And holding that in loving kindness, ha, huh, it's here. A mind that wants something, that wants something outside of itself to be okay and happy. Oh, so I need, I believe I need this meeting to go a certain way so I can be happy. Then I'll be whole and a good person and you'll all love me and I'll be productive and the world will be happy. You know, we'll be effective and you know, on and on. I, I, my story, I could have my story. Oh, so I've constructed a story about the meeting, the people, and what we are supposed to do. And if it goes my way in my story, then the world will be a safe world. I'll be safe, I'll be whole, we'll all be safe, we'll be in. We won't be in this thing called the world, which is subject to change, has suffering, right? And it, you're not the self you think you are, right? You see what I mean? So it's about, uh, the point that I'm trying to make is, it's not giving yourself a grade. I should get this noble truth of grasping and clinging, right? It's not that. I should know this. Put it down, let it go. Come on, Wendy, how many, how long have you been in that dedicated practitioner's program now, right, right? You know, how long have you been doing this? No, it's about seeing the truth as it unpacks for you in the moment. Ha, huh, there's a mind here that wants things to be a certain way. And I'm rejecting what's not here. I'm pulling away and rejecting. I'm saying no. And when I say no, I close my heart to myself. I close it to me. I close the door. Huh, interesting. I can close that door or open the door. But what I have to let go is the idea of who I think I am. My ego. My beautiful ego. My beautiful ego. <laughs> you get it? My beautiful ego. I know how that meeting should be run and how you should all behave. I even know how to make the world a better place. <laughs> I do, right? <laughs> you see? So he's not asking for something easy. Let go of me? Are you kidding? <laughs> no, I'm really so awesome, like, right? <laughs> It could flip the other way, too, as we know, right? Oh, no. I've really made mistakes in this meeting. I cannot run the meeting. I cannot work with people. I can't control things. I have no organizational skills. What did I think I was doing, right? It can go either way. But it's still me. So the, the fourth thing, I have no idea if I gave this talk. All right, so the fourth step is um, he's saying, if you follow the path, follow the path. This is the way you put this thing in life called suffering down, right? 
Um, so he's saying partly follow a path of integrity, of value, um, of skill. That's part of it. But really, it's an invitation. And coming back to Stephen Batchelor, he makes this beautiful point. Um, and I really have gratitude for him to, for, for some of his teachings. Um, and that is that when I put down my view of myself and how I think the world should be, what is in its place? What fills it? Emptiness, I don't know, not me, mm -hmm. right? This open-ended question, this open road, this beautiful open space that doesn't know, that just is, it's just here for this ride. And that's the space of not knowing here, maybe there's something that I don't know. That's emptiness, and that's nirvana, right? That's nirvana. It's not knowing. It's empty. It's empty of me. And in that space, what is that? Let's experience it, right? How do we experience that? Creativity comes. Solutions come. Possibilities come. Wisdom comes. Quiet comes. Peace comes. Stillness. Freedom comes. Emptiness, empty, 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 empty of who I think I am, right? Empty of this mind chattering. And I'm in the field. And I'm even in the field with all of you that have gotten me really mad at the meeting, right? I'm in the field. So the fourth step is that path to emptiness. It's the path to not know in a certain way, to live this I don't know. This beautiful, I don't know, the embrace of it. So, um, so, just taking a moment, I think of, of maybe closing your eyes, having a moment of um, looking in, just being with your life, your mind, your meeting. And where in your life have you felt there's been some clinging or grasping or holding or suffering? What image comes up for you? Is it, is it a person? Is it a place? Is it something about yourself? Is it an idea? Is it something about the future? And just imagining, imagining the image of a fist that's tightly closed, of grasping and clinging to something, and imagining in another moment that the hand opens. Both hands open. And you don't really know what the letting go looks like. There isn't a pure knowing of that. But just being with a dropping, a losing, a peeling away of something about this situation. 
for you. And even giving yourself a few breaths to not know. As a matter of fact, you can even on the inhale say, what is this? And on the exhale, I don't know. And taking a few breaths, what is this? I don't know. Seeing if you could sit with that koan. What is this? Don't know. So patiently, slowly, kindly, with patience and love and gentleness, ease, no pushing, no pushing. Slowly we walk down that path of not knowing together with that open hand. And, and as Sangha, as a group, then um, we, we know that field together, right? We taste that field. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.